This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Jim Stroud, and this is my podcast. Today, I had the distinct pleasure of chatting with Julie Lammer, Senior VP at American Student Assistance. We talk about the power of work-based learning and preparing students for success. I believe it is a topic that is near and dear to her heart, and when you listen to our discussion, I think you will agree with me. Stay tuned, because that conversation will begin right after this. The Recruiting Life is a newsletter that gives a whimsical view of the world of work. It aspires to educate and entertain with articles, comics, videos, podcasts, contests, and more. It is produced on a weekly basis by yours truly, Jim Stroud, and is supported by readers like you. Topics in this newsletter include the future of work, current labor trends, sourcing passive candidates, and more. Subscribe now and receive it every Monday in your email by going to jimstroud.com slash subscribe. That's jimstroud.com slash subscribe. Link in the podcast description. Don't wait. Subscribe now. Operators are standing by. Hello and welcome to the Jim Stroud Podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Special guest, tell us who are you and what do you do? Hi, Jim. Very nice to, to talk to you. I'm Julie Lammers. I'm the Senior Vice President of Advocacy and Corporate Social Responsibility for the national nonprofit American Student Assistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are a nonprofit that helps young people uh, understand their career options and, and goals uh, and then chart a course to post-secondary education and career success. That sounds important. <laughs> you are doing the right. Yeah, we're, we're not. We're we're not. We're you know trying to tackle everything all at once. <laughs> not a small task we're trying to undertake. For sure. Um, first question for you then. Um, can you share some insights on the importance of work-based learning and preparing students for successful careers, and why it should be a priority for HR professionals? Absolutely. So, you know, I think work-based learning is really critical at all stages of the learning process. And I think Mm. increasingly we're seeing whether you're talking to uh, business leaders, hiring managers, that uh, the K-12 and post-secondary education system really isn't providing young people with the skills they need uh, to, to be successful immediately on the job. And so, you know, what we are seeing is these hands-on learning opportunities, opportunities to learn through work uh, and learn about work while while doing uh, work-based learning experiences really are critically important to help young people build skills, uh, but also critically important to build the social capital necessary to navigate the job market. You know, 50% of jobs still come through who you know. So if Mm. you have no exposure 
to the working world, it makes it increasingly difficult to, to um, enter the job market, to understand what job possibilities are, um, and to find one that, that fits your uh, unique skill set and, and interests. So uh, work-based learning experiences, we talk quite a bit about um, the expansion of these opportunities uh, into the high school space. I think increasingly a lot of people do um, participate in them when they may go uh, into post-secondary education, but we see that as, as sort of risky and a little bit too late in the process to have some of these formative experiences. You know, if you wait until your junior year of college to take an internship and discover you hate what it is you've been training for the last <laughs> two or three years, yeah. it's really expensive, right, to, to change course at that point. And so, you know, we would love to see um, a lot more opportunity in the high school uh, age uh, age group for young people to have these opportunities to test and try what they might like and discover what they hate at a much earlier age when that risk of failure and that risk of, um, you know, uh, being able to try something that you, you don't know whether or not this is a path you want to take is really mm -hmm. a lot lower. If you wait, the longer you wait to do those things, the, the, the higher the risk uh, um, becomes. And so we really are trying to expand opportunity for young people um, no later than high school to be able to understand their role in the working world, narrow in on some career interests that that might align with their long-term goals, help clarify what those goals might be. Uh, and that way they can more deliberately choose the post-secondary education path that works for them. Um, but right now that's not really what happens. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's kind of the opportunity that we're trying to build by um, increasing exposure to work-based learning, entrepreneurship experiences, you know, hands-on learning experiences uh, no later than high school. I like that. I like that a lot. I'm, you know, back, back in my day, uh, <laughs> we had auto tech, you know, and we had wood tech and uh, iron tech where you can uh, work with your hands and learn how to do um, blue collar, blue collar jobs, you know, which is really um, in demand a lot, a lot of times, a lot. And it's really in demand these days, what I'm trying to say. And a lot of those programs were taken out. Like I said, it's back in my day when I was in high school, you could learn how to work on a car, but you don't mm -hmm. have those kind of programs in high school anymore. What what happened to those? I'm just sort of curious. Do you know? Because it seemed like that's a no-brainer. You should always do that. You should have always done that. I don't know why they were taken out of school. Yeah. And I think this goes to a, a challenge that we're faced with now when it comes to a push for sort of college for all versus mm -hmm. um, technical education. And it has become an either or. Uh, in a lot of school systems that you you go a CTE track or you go a college track. And that is sort of an absolutely inappropriate way, in our opinion, to, to mm. view the world. Those hands-on, high-impact, high-quality programs that happen in, in CTE programs or some other pathway programs that are being built really are an opportunity to uh, build towards a, a career, but also build towards um, college, you know, college should be a means of um, understanding and and sort of growing and mm. and how do you how do we rethink that bifurcation of uh, CTE versus college? College should be for the long term career outcomes and economic prosperity of all young people, sure. and so. College, uh, college for career, really, <laughs> it should be the the goal. 
um, not one or the other, but there has been this, this disconnect over the last, you know, 15, 20 years of mm. we need to have either technical hands-on training or college. And it really needs to be more deliberately combined because young people need both. They need hands-on experiences to understand what their role is in the world, what skills they need to build, uh, how they can envision themselves in uh, the, the, the working world in the future. And they need some sort of post-secondary education and, and training in order to do that. That's necessary for everyone. It might not necessarily be a traditional college path, but some sort of education and training will be necessary. So we need to better align and think about that education to career trajectory and get away from the college track or, uh, you know, this CTE track that we have um, gone down over the last couple of years. Sure. Let, let me ask you this. I'm, what you mentioned that has my mind buzzing on <laughs> different directions. Um, I, of course, there's a lot of buzz going on now about AI and artificial intelligence and technology kind of stuff. And a lot of adults uh, who have been in the workforce for a number of years, people like myself, old folkies, you know, and they see uh, sort of see a, a bit of a writing on the wall and they're concerned about their careers. How are mm -hmm. students really reacting to all of this talk about artificial intelligence, technology, taking things over? Are, are, do they feel like they're wasting their time in school or are they thinking they're, they're learning the wrong things in school? What's the general feel from students these days? So I don't think necessarily right now, I think they're trying to figure out how to use AI as a tool okay. for help, to help them do things better. And And quite frankly, I think it is a really meaningful tool if used correctly. You know, I think when we talk about um, all of the challenges that employers have in hiring hiring these days, some of the skills that they say are missing are things like communication, critical thinking, mm. all of those things that AI, quite frankly, at the moment can't really solve for. AI is generally a regurgitation of facts, which um, a lot of people would argue is what we are currently teaching young people to do in, in some of our <laughs> traditional school settings. Right. And so then how do you use AI to you know, help someone, yes, write an essay, but then have them think critically about what's missing from that or what AI hasn't been able to answer, solve for. So I think it is a really important opportunity to think about how do you use this tool critically going forward to improve on current systems because it's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and so I think it is, uh, I don't think young people are, are scared of it. I think they live in a world where this technology is just has always existed and it's an improving over time. I think when you, when you say, uh, you know, do they, doesn't make them see like miss the relevance in what they're doing in school. I think that's been a challenge all along mm. to mm. begin with, right? Young people don't necessarily understand why it is they're learning math because there has not been an intentional link between the education systems we have and the real world learning that can happen and needs to happen in order to make it relevant for young people. And so for us, that's one of those re the reasons that we really lean into the career connected learning opportunities to make sure young people understand that there is long-term applicability to the things that they're learning in school. Um, and this is immediately why it's relevant. And those types of experiences that get them out of the classroom, have them interacting with employers or 
entrepreneurship experiences or um, you know service learning that they see what they're doing in the classroom has meaning, has relevance, and will actually be used in some way. Um, that is a, a great opportunity to drive young people's engagement in what they're learning um, and really have them think differently about why they're in school um, and what they can gain from it. I so agree with that. A lot of the things I learned in school, well, some of the things I learned in school, I figured like, what do I need to, to know this? Unless I'm going to be on Jeopardy or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, unless I'm going to be on Jeopardy, I really don't see the, the reason for some of the things that I was taught in school, even now. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's one of the challenges that we have when you think about things like skills-based hiring and, mm -hmm. and sort of the trajectory that we're going with how we're evaluating young people young people or working adults as they're entering the job market, that you don't necessarily um, think about how what I'm learning in school has has built a skill set, right? Young people have a deficit in being able to articulate the kinds of skills they have actually built by, you know, doing science labs or, um, you know, teamwork that they might have done in a history class or, uh, you know, the communication skills that they've learned in English. That's not something that's ever really communicated to young people from a standpoint of what are the skills you're learning mm. when you read Moby Dick <laughs> or have to do a presentation on it. Um, it, it is, it is sort of tactical. It is very transactional. Um, and I, I, it's not, you know, it's not something, a way of thinking that we have encouraged students to have for, we've that we've encouraged um, teachers to help articulate. It's just not something that we've sort of built into our current systems, but it's certainly something that employers are looking for. for sure. um, and so we need to figure out a way to, to bridge that gap in some way. Definitely. Uh, let me switch gears a little bit. Um, as someone who's worked extensively on advocating for equity in education and career development. What are some of the key challenges you've observed in providing mm -hmm. universal access to work-based learning at the high school level? Yeah, so there, there are quite a few. You know, I think we are at the point of really trying to encourage employer engagement in work-based mm. learning um, so that we can have a, a, just a greater sense of opportunity. But it, it, we can't build uh, programs that um, only serve certain populations. And I think I do in, in its truest sense, like a work-based learning has historically been based on social capital, right? You've right. gotten an internship because your uncle worked at a doctor's office and could get you in the door there, right? That's how a lot of these systems were initially built. We need to get away from that. So that social capital piece is enormously important. And so we rely then on school systems to make sure that we are providing opportunity to a wide range of students. But the systems that we're building also have to be really intentional to make sure that all students can access them. That means paid opportunities because most young people can't afford to not get paid for the work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, right? It means credit in high school, right? So if you are doing this internship, how is that translating to something on your transcripts that can um, be used long-term and sort of articulate the skills that you've learned there? And then we need to look at the, the barriers that young people might have to accessing these opportunities. Can we establish, you know, um, some sort of transportation options for young people that might not have access to, to it? What are things 
that um, this the local community is doing around um, you know wraparound supports, not only transportation but appropriate training. Um, I have seen some uh, states do a really good job at things like ensuring young people understand and have access to appropriate work clothing. Um, not okay. it's not something that um, you know everyone needs to be concerned about, but most young people that are are entering the the working world have never experienced what it's like to walk into a workspace, don't necessarily know what that looks like. Um, and so they need not only the training, but the supports and oftentimes access to appropriate um, uh, resources in order to do that. And so you can't just build programs absent of all of those um, activities if we want to make sure that uh, we are really ensuring that that all young people can have appropriate access to, to high quality experiences. You can't just sort of throw them out there, um, try right. to partner up an employer and uh, a young person and hope for the best. Um, we also look quite a bit at how do we help uh, employers understand sort of the cultural competencies needed hmm. in order to appropriately support young people. Um, and I think it's, they're not, employers aren't teachers, right? They haven't gone through that um, that training of how to deal with young people in the workplace right. uh, necessarily. Um, but uh, they can't also invite young people in to uh, a work environment and expect to treat them like a 40-year-old employee that's been there for, for, you know, 20 years. There is a level of understanding that employers need to have about how to appropriately um, work with young people and how to uh, respect where they're coming from uh, into the workspace. It's a great opportunity for employers to have young people in their workspace to bring in diverse perspectives, but they need to be prepared to do that in a supportive way that respects uh, the young people that are coming in. It's not a favor to them to have them in the office. <laughs> you know, yes. you have to be really, really critical and, and, and strategic in how you're doing it and make sure the right support systems are in place. Well said, well said, well said. I have this image in mind. I, I, I'm thinking about some of the young people in my life and I'm thinking about them walking into a, a cubicle uh, with their mm -hmm. mobile phones stuck up to their faces. <laughs> and yeah. I, and, you know, it's just it's simple things that, um, you know, that people might not uh, think think through. Right. We right. recently had a young young person in our office that um, lived on the other side of Boston. You know, our office is in downtown Boston. But this this young man had never been on the subway. He had never been in an elevator. And so those ideas of coming into hmm. a high rise building in his own city were overwhelming to him. And so, you know, we had to sort of think through how do we manage that? How do we get him to a place um, where he is comfortable being in an office space? Uh, and ultimately, we were really successful in doing that. Now he wants, you know, a, an internship long term. But it is just understanding that not everyone is coming to these experiences in the same way and uh, respecting that and figuring out a way to support that. Wow. Wow. It's almost like you need to have a a, a practice dry run, maybe on a Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, I think it's just communication, right? It is yeah. is trying to understand uh, where these young people are coming from, how they can be a benefit to your organization, right? Because it needs to be a two-way street. There needs to be uh, a benefit to the employer to have opportunities like this. Um, but really understanding their their strengths and and what they can bring to it, but understanding that they're they have their own challenges and and how do you help them and support them through that?
Very good. Very good. Now, I know your work uh, includes collaborating with elected officials and promoting legislative priorities related to career-based learning. What advice do you have for HR professionals in terms of engaging with policymakers and, and advocating for initiatives that support workforce development and equitable opportunities? That's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there, there are a lot of opportunities. And I okay. think you know, the, the employer role is really critical. I, I, I think a lot of times we have um, seen uh, these some of these workforce development issues, particularly for youth, mm. as being the responsibility of a school system. Um, but it needs to be a collaborative effort, right? We can't provide high quality career connected learning experiences without employers being actively engaged. And so I think one of the, the conversations that employers need to have with legislators is helping them understand all of the barriers that are in place to employer participation in these programs. So we have seen quite a bit of movement lately trying to incentivize employers to participate, whether through you know, um, grants from states that might cover startup costs, uh, tax credits that might offset some of the training expenses of, of, of starting up these programs, but also states that are looking at how are things like liability for young people uh, what what needs to be changed in the insurance space <laughs> mm -hmm, so that mm -hmm. uh, it's not a liability risk to bring someone that's 16 or 17 into your workspace? Um, what uh, role can the uh, state's federal government play in helping with those transportation challenges that we have or some of the infrastructure issues that, that might be occurring? There are lots of reasons honestly, that it, it, it's easy for an employer to say no, that it's just too much for me to take on um, this type of youth engagement and training. Uh, and so it's uh, it, critically important for employers to have conversations with legislators about how can some of those state-imposed systems be changed, uh, alleviated in some way to encourage employer engagement. Okay. Uh, so I think that, you know, that's, that's really where we are at this point and, and really critically important. Now, um, I, I know your organization has conducted research on work-based learning programs, policy analysis, and recommendations for improvement. Could you um, highlight some of the key findings and some of the best practices that HR professionals can use in their talent acquisition and development strategies? Yes. Yeah, so I think, you know, I've, I've mentioned some of them that mm. some states have done a great job at helping alleviate some of the sort of administrative burdens of having um, a, a high quality work-based learning experiences. I think where it begins really is an evaluation from the employer of what, uh, what types of activities could we realistically uh, have uh, young people participate in and that where they would be successful. You know, do we have uh, internal management that could take on this task? And and I think we see this is sometimes a really good opportunity for employers to be able to give a certain level of of training to mm -hmm. younger staffers, right? Um, to 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 people that might not have a lot of management experience. Is this an opportunity for them to begin that? Um, management training with with an intern or a work-based learning experience of some kind, job shadow, something like that. Um, so those are a couple of things. I think from a policy perspective, there are some states that have done a really good job at helping employers um, articulate what are um, high quality experiences. You know, it 
we don't want necessarily just experiences where someone goes in and gets coffee and files things all day, (laughs) but, and, and we have a lot of metrics that we put on schools around what young people are learning. Um, We don't have similar requirements around what an employer might be providing. And so I think there are some states uh, that are pushing in that direction, trying to understand if a young person is going to get credit for this, what are they actually doing on the job and what are we holding employers responsible for providing? Um, so I think there, there is more movement in, in that way. Um, and I think there are quite a few states that are also looking at this as an important opportunity to um, drive equity around work-based learning. How are we very deliberate in the programs that we're um, providing opportunity for? Do we have programs for kids with disabilities? Do we have programs mm. that accommodate um, you know, high need populations, uh, rather than universal access that we know is not, you know, equity based and providing real opportunity for all students. Uh, how can we be more deliberate in, in some of those policies? So I think there is a lot of movement in that direction. Some states, particularly the smaller states like Rhode Island and Delaware have, have had significantly more, um, movement, and I think mainly because they just have a smaller population to address, uh, but I don't want to discount the fact that they've also been very deliberate in their thinking about how they tackle some of these issues. So um, yes, there's lots of good work happening there. Are there a lot of tax breaks and tax incentives associated with these programs? I, I imagine so. Yes, there are. Um, t- typically for slightly older populations, so we see okay. a lot of it in the, in the apprenticeship type models uh, that exist. Um, not necessarily for high school participation in particular, although some states do do that. Um, some states do provide either a matching fund or a grant for startup costs. Um, but I, we do see it t- tends to be uh, for sort of older workforce development um, issues. Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. Um, you've been very generous of your time. I got one more question I got to squeeze out here uh, if I can beat the clock. Sure. <laughs> What are some of the key skills and competencies that employers are prioritizing over traditional qualifications? Very curious. Yeah. So, you know, this is a really interesting issue. We did we did some research last year around um, uh, the sort of growing landscape of diverse post-secondary education options and and what employers think about them. And we found that about 72 percent of employers said they did not think traditional degrees were a good signal of assessing the quality (laughs) of a candidate. Wow, right? that uh, makes a lot of institutions nervous. <laughs> yeah, but the reality is because there are very few other ways of assessing, they still default mm. to degrees. Um, and so, but what we are seeing is this growing interest in skills-based hiring. Um, you know, I we've done a, quite a bit of work with the organization America Succeeds, which has come up with this rubric around durable skills. And these are the types of um, skills like communication, like critical thinking, but even you know deeper are things like um, empathy and resilience and um, creativity and persistence. These types of innate s- skills that that do need to be built over time. Mm-hmm. And and they did research that found seven out of ten jobs re- request at least one of these durable skills. And so those are the types of things that we need to do better at helping young people build at an earlier age, because that's what employers are looking for. Um, And then we also need to do a much better job at helping young people articulate that they have those types of skills. So as we're moving towards a a 
time when employers are trying to think differently about how they hire, we need to equip young people with the ability to say, these are the skills I have. These are the skills I know you need. <laughs> uh, and this is how I've built them up over time through hands-on learning, work-based experiences uh, that really makes me ready to, to be hired immediately and contribute to the job. Uh, so, you know, that's, I think, the direction we're moving in. But those durable skills are, are critically important. Some of the more technical skills can fairly easily be taught on the job. Uh, but it is those durable skills that um, that employers are saying, I just can't teach empathy, you know, mm -hmm. to someone. Mm -hmm. I, I can't teach time management to someone that has never thought about that before. Uh, those things are hard for employers to say, this is something I can do without. And so those are the types of of, of um, skills we really need to ensure we're, we're, we're building for our youth. Yeah, that skill-based hiring that resonates with me because I've been seeing uh, new tools hit the market uh, that address mm -hmm. that. One of them being Tatia. Um, and I'll include I'll a link in it in the podcast description for those listening. Um, but Tatio um, is a good skills assessment kind of tool that employers are using these days. Uh, very mm -hmm. cool. Wow. Um, I think I could go on forever, but I know that, I, <laughs> that time is limited. If someone wanted to get in contact with you for more information, uh, how can they do that? So uh, our, our website is www.asa.org uh, and all of my contact information is there. My, again, my name is Julie Lammers. Uh, feel free to reach out if we can be helpful. Again, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you being on the Jim Stroud Podcast. Thanks, Jim. Well, my time is up. I thank you for yours. I'll see you again real soon right here with a brand new episode of the Jim Stroud Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to reach out to me. I can be reached by email at jimstroud at jimstroud.com. And one last favor, if I may ask, please rate this podcast. Uh, five stars is preferred, <laughs> but uh, please uh, comment uh, with your honest opinion. I really appreciate that. All right. Okay, until next time, bye-bye. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.